the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gap, episode 568, for Sunday, August 30th, 2015. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. It's like car talk for Apple geeks. You send in your questions, we send in your answers. We actually talk about your answers. We do more than send them in. We don't phone it in here. We podcast it in. That's how we do it. And the goal is for everybody to learn at least three new things every time we get together. Sponsor for this show is... DigiDNA with their fantastic, amazing product. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but coupon code MGG gets you 20% off of this fantastic iDevice manager, cross-platform Mac and Windows. Amazing. We'll talk about that shortly here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How are you doing today, Mr. John F. Braun? I'm doing great. My computer was acting up a little bit, so we'll... Uh... Yeah, not sure what it is. I should send a question into those Mackie Cup guys <laughs> and ask about it. What's what seems to be what seems to be ailing you, my friend? Um, once I got this uh, spiffy new uh, Yamaha uh, AG06 here, which is a sweet piece of equipment, I gotta say. It's the new mixer for those of you just catching up. Yeah, and it's funny because I notice on their product page they call it webcasting, not podcasting. <laughs> Very interesting. They refer to it that way. That is interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, as soon as I caught that, I would notice that um, my keyboard would disappear. And I have a kind of wacky keyboard, so I wonder if that's the problem. Got and, it. Uh, but, but it only started happening. You know, I'd type on the keyboard and nothing would happen. And I'd have to pull it out and plug it back in again. So. Um, Sounds like a power yeah. thing. That's my suspicion. Yep. And I checked and, you know, everybody, you know, if you go to system info, everybody's drawing, you know, wants 500 milliamps and is drawing 500 milliamps. And this machine, as far as I can tell, has four buses. So, so I plunked down some dough and I got a spiffy USB three hub. Oh, nice. Because I also am out of ports here. This thing only has four ports. So I sure. figure, yeah, I'll get a USB hub and see if that solves it. Yeah. It, it, a powered hub probably should solve that. I, I would, I would think we'll figure it out. But that's that's step one. And you have an external drive plugged in, a bus powered external drive as well, right? Yeah, so I have um yeah, so I have this wacky uh you know verbatim audio keyboard. Yeah. Uh, I have a Kensington expert mouse, because I love these trackballs. Yeah, so USB drive for my uh daily backups and then of course the mixer. And actually I don't have enough ports because I also have a uh, Logitech uh webcam. And uh, right now I'd leave that unplugged because I typically don't use that very often. Sure, sure. So but with a, with a hub, with... you could leave it all plugged in. You know what's funny is I'm up here in the studio and I have the, the, the machine, the setup here in the studio has, well, it's existed this way for uh, what about nine and a half years since we built this room. But uh, the computer that's here has changed twice. It started as a power PC, a white power PC iMac. And then it became a an aluminum uh, Core 2 Duo 2007, 2008 vintage iMac. And now it's the 2011 iMac uh, that I used to have in my office, the 27-inch. 
And, uh, and I've needed more USB ports than any of those devices has had. And so it, your, your discussion of this today made me realize that I have an Elgato. Oh, no, sorry. A doctor bought. So defunct company now four port uh-huh. USB hub. But I think it's certainly not a USB three hub. To be honest with you, I think it's a USB one hub. Um, running here i gotta look at this thing but i'm pretty sure that that's what it is oh my gosh you know yeah it's kind of it's green and unusually shaped because yeah i was going through a goodie bag and i'm like yeah. oh, look at that a doctor bot hub yeah 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 i think i got one of those kicking around too oh huh, maybe i'll try that no well no if it's usb1 then i don't yeah the, the hub maxes out at 12 megabytes or megabits a second megabits yeah megabits yeah so uh that it is a USB one hub, but it's, it's it. All I have plugged into it is my mouse and my keyboard and my, um, uh, the, the US UPS, right. The, the, the I have a APC battery backup unit, you know, on this machine. And so those are the three things plugged into it. And it, you know what, uh, until you mentioned it, I didn't even think about the fact that I have this literally ancient piece of equipment. I think it's, I think it, it qualifies for antique status at this point. So, but it's got fun little lights on it and it's powered and I haven't had a lick of trouble with it. So I guess there's that, but it would not, this would not solve your problem necessarily. Well, I could plug some devices into it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's got power. So whatever you plug into it is going to, you know, draw power, hopefully from the the hub and not from your Mac. So. Oh, I think that's why I decided not to use it because I think I misplaced the, uh, the wall wart, the power brick. Yeah. Yeah, I've been pretty diligent over the years, perhaps to my dismay. I mean, I, I, perhaps to my, my detriment. I have, um, about keeping power bricks together with their things, I now actually use one of those Dymo labelers, and I label every power brick that I have. And I know that sounds obsessive, but when you're digging through a box of power bricks, it's freaking awesome to have a label on the thing to tell you what it's for. Or, even better, digging around on you know underneath your desk when you see this pile of power bricks, you're like, wait a minute, you know, which one is this for? Even if it's for something that's like plugged in and you could suss it out, it totally solves the problem. I highly recommend one of those Dymo labeler things. They're, 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 um, the one thing that, that I had to overcome with it is when you start reading reviews of them, they'll all say, oh, the stupid thing spits out extra label and you waste the label tape. And you know, it's a big, it's, it's a, it's a scam to get you to buy more labels. Well, of course it's a scam to get you to buy more labels. That's the whole idea. But uh, forget about that. Don't obsess over it. Just buy the stupid tape and you'll love it. So that's my, uh, that's my advice. Anyway, that's, that's, but yes, I have this thing, but I also have like a beautiful Satechi USB three hub downstairs, a, a seven port thing. That's, uh, it's actually quite it, it, this Satechi thing. I'll, I'll find the, um, the, the model because it's, it looks, it looks gorgeous in pictures, um, it's this 10 port aluminum hub. It kind of matches the Apple keyboard styling and all of that stuff. The problem with it is it's powered. That's not a problem. Uh, it's all USB three. It had seven ports that are like USB ports. And then it has three charging only ports, which is super handy. So you want this thing front facing. Here's the problem with it. The power port is on one side of the device and the USB port to cl- plug into your computer is on the other side, not on the back of it. So it's this beautiful angled thing, 
where you could have the power in the USB coming out the back and it would just take up its width of the, you know, of the device itself. But no, it's got these things. So it's got these like ears hanging off of it of power cables and USB cables. And it's really kind of ugly and, and, and more than being ugly, it just doesn't fit anywhere. Cause you've got these two cables that have to come out of opposite sides of the thing left and right. So, uh, but it's a nice little thing. I've got it downstairs. I should probably just plug it in and, and use that. Yeah. Appeal. I saw those and, in- Anchor, none of them really thrilled me. And then I found a review online and I actually got one uh, that I never heard of before. Hutu, H-O-O-T-O-O. I will say this. I think you made a mistake skipping the Anchor stuff. Those folks really know what they're doing, especially when it comes to USB and power. I've had, I, I mean, I can't speak highly enough of Anchor and their products. So. Yeah, but then I found this other one, and it had a couple of extra features. So, so it's not only USB three, but it also has uh, uh, charging ports one and uh, two point one uh, amp, which I thought was a nice uh, additional feature. But yeah, I was I was considering the uh, the anchor stuff. Yeah, they make they really really know what they're doing. I've been super impressed with everything I've had from them. Yeah, well, maybe I'll get get one from them, too. All right. All right. So enough about that. But yeah, if you have USB problems, a powered USB hub is probably something that'll solve your woes. Yeah. It solves my woes. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to put a link to yours in the show notes, Mr. Mr. Braun. I'm curious to see how that goes. All right. Uh, well, I think it's time to talk to Craig. In fact, I know it's time to talk to Craig. We have a couple of tips actually to share, and Craig is going to kick us off here. He says, I'm sure this is old news. Nothing's old, Craig. But I just discovered something that has changed my life. I travel all over Asia Pacific for work. Needless to say, I have 10 different time zones set up in my World Clock app in iOS to help keep track of when and where I am as I travel. Since the beginning, I simply added a time zone and used the analog clock. The other day, I was fumbling around in the clock app and happened to tap the analog clock in the side there. And lo and behold, all the clocks automatically switched to digital, literally life changing, especially when I'm jet lagged for traveling uh, after traveling for 18 hours. I'm sure pilot Pete can relate. Uh, It says on OS 10, if you want to switch between analog and digital clocks option, click on the clock in the menu bar and you will get options to switch between the two. I hope this helps out at least one person. Yeah, man, I had no idea that you could make those clocks in the list and worldview um, or in world clock, uh, digital there. That is handy. It's, uh, I say, I tend to think of time in an analog fashion. I, I actually, when I read a digital clock, I picture it in my head as analog, but, um, but I'm sure there are others that are exactly the opposite and being able to see all those clocks in digital fashion is, is, uh, super handy. So thanks for that, Craig. That is good stuff. Moving on to uh, to Jim. Jim actually has a couple of things to share with us today because uh, because that's how actually I guess I'm not sure if it's the same person. We have Jim and we have James and I'm trying to find them both here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he signed it the same. Yeah, same guy. It's the same guy. Okay. Uh so he goes on to say that uh, so we were talking about uh, we're talking about TrueCrypt and God, where are we here? I don't do I not have this one here? 
The first one, do you have the first one, John, that you can read for me? The one about how it might still be safe. Yes. Oh, well, I changed the name of it. Oh, you changed the name. That's why I can't find it. Okay. I've got it here then. Great. No problem. So Jim says, uh, a thought from an episode a couple of weeks ago regarding whether TrueCrypt is safe or not. While the program's abandonment by the developers was weird, it seems reasonable to accept the conjecture by Steve Gibson from the Security Now podcast. He rationalized it as most likely due to uh, TrueCrypt being a free program, which was not worth the developers' time to defend against the early post-Snowden chatter about it maybe having an NSA backdoor. The two subsequent formal code audits by Matthew Green of Harvard have found some code errors which, if corrected would enhance the security of the program, but certainly no backdoors. The audit group feels comfortable using the software, as does Steve Gibson, who is maintaining a downloadable copy uh, on his site, grc.com, for anyone who wants it. So, yeah, you, you're, you're absolutely right that, uh, that all of these people have certified this as not unsafe, and that's good. My issue with using a piece of, uh, of, 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 of end-of-life or unsupported or un- undeveloped software is or no longer developed. I should say it was developed at one time, but using no longer developed software is that all it takes is one point upgrade from Apple to do something intentional or not that renders that software useless and unusable. And when you're using something to encrypt your data, well, now you have a problem if you can't run the software that's required to decrypt your data. So that that's my big concern with using TrueCrypt right now. And uh, John, you said you found an alternative and and then just went went all crazy yes. and changed the name of our PDF. So I had no idea what I was reading. But go ahead and tell us about the. Other yeah. Oh, well, I wanted to try to catch your attention yeah. and not distract you. But uh, my apologies, my friend. But uh, that's OK. But I agree with you. I I would not use TrueCrypt. Because again, it's end of life. It's not supported anymore. Fortunately, now there are a number of people that uh, stepped up to the plate and said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to take uh, we're going to take over and uh, maybe fix this up here and uh, support it." And one is called VeraCrypt. We mentioned that recently, or you did, right? In uh, in a cool stuff found episode a couple of weeks we ago, we did. And I just want to. You know, in the context of this question, since now we're explicitly, yeah, I mentioned it in a cool stuff found, but I want to mention it in this context because uh, sure, it does, uh, as far as I can see, they mention what it does for you. One thing it does is that they, uh, I think, took care of some of the uh, concerns about TrueCrypt and that they enhance the uh, security. Nice. Uh, so it's less prone to uh, uh, brute force attacks. Uh, and it's current. The The most recent, recent version of VeraCrypt is... Uh, dated August 9th, 2015. That's new enough for me, man. Yeah, that's good. And there's one for OS 10, Windows, uh, Linux. Because uh, one of the nice things about it, and I actually did a write-up like about five years ago on it. Uh, the, the nice thing is that in certain configurations, it's cross-platform. Whereas, you know, things like File Vault, of course, are not. So. That's true. Yeah, right. That That is the benefit of, right. If you're going to do whole disk encryption, certainly for your boot drive on your Mac, I, I just can't recommend File Vault 2 enough. It, it, it's absolutely the right thing to do. It offers all the functionality you'd want with very little speed, if, it, very little speed impact, if any. And if there is any, as we've said, it actually makes it a little faster, uh, but not by much. So, yeah, it's... Uh, 
file vault's the way to go for that. But if you need to encrypt something else and you want it to be available to others on other platforms simultaneously, then yeah, TrueCrypt was the answer and Veracrypt certainly is now. In fact, Jim, uh, Jim followed up and said, uh, as I was driving off uh, after sending my earlier message, I remembered a point of confusion during your discussion about TrueCrypt. Your commentary gave the impression that the software is primarily whole disk encryption. Well, I suppose someone might use it for that purpose. It is much more useful in my world for single file encryption. It is a little understood additional capability that most people do not understand. TrueCrypt can create, and here's, here's where it gets really interesting, folks. TrueCrypt can create dual layer encryption within a single file. This is useful where there's a need to create plausible denial. For example, a person working within an organization who is a whistleblower. That person can use TrueCrypt to create a single file, which when decrypted with one password will present information set A, while the same file decrypted with a different password presents information set B. When internal affairs come snooping on the computer and demands that the individual provide the password for the encrypted file, uh, that has been only worked on uh, five minutes ago. You can give up password A, decrypt the file to reveal the beginning of the plans for the department's surprise birthday party for the head of security or some other benign information that the person would have a reason to work on and a reason to protect. Internal affairs is then satisfied and goes away, not knowing that your notes taken from the department files on the cover-up of misbehavior, fraud, abuse, or whatever are in the same file under password B. TrueCrypt is a useful tool to avoid getting caught. So while that example is perhaps a bit extreme, it is a perfect example uh, to illustrate that I had no idea uh, that feature that I had no idea existed. That, that's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool, man. Thank you, Jim. Agreed. Yeah. And they actually call it a hidden partition when you're setting things okay. up. Because um, I went through this, uh, you know, again, in my write up here. Yeah. When, you, when you're creating, so yeah. So it creates two different worlds no i agree that's that that's actually kind of hilarious <laughs> yeah 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 and then, you know somebody with a gun to your head or something all right give me the encryption keys oh all right. okay or, or the password go. that's right it's like all right well here's the bogus password you got me <laughs> you got me that's right uh brian monroe in the chat room oh sorry not brian monroe mac tech freak in the chat room now says big brother is gonna shut down mac geek Gab. well if that were the case uh i think they would have done this long ago the chat room is at macgeekab.com slash stream for those of you that want to join it. And in fact, uh, if you download the now freely available MacGeekab iOS app and run it, you will get a push notification when we are starting the live stream while we're in pre-show. So you get a little bit of warning before the actual show starts and you can join us there and chat with us. It's a whole lot of fun and we would love to have you. So go ahead and get that MacGeekab app. We'll put a link in the show notes, as always, to that. One last tip while we're here, John, is uh, comes from a diff different listener, James, who says, uh, recently I clicked on a seemingly legitimate Safari link only to have a tab and an overlay window open instead of the tab I was expecting. The overlay window had no toolbar at the top, and the tab that opened displayed a Windows blue screen of death text on it. The overlay window contained text that said my Windows computer, uh, I'm on a Mac, of course, uh, was infected and that I needed to call someone, yada, yada, yada. After some Google foo, I found out that JavaScript was being used to create this hijack. And when I clicked on the Safari, Safari toolbar, the quit Safari option was grayed out, which is something that can happen uh, when you, especially with a JavaScript attack like this, but that the preferences option was still available. 
I opened Safari's preferences, clicked security, and unchecked enable JavaScript. I then clicked the Apple icon and used the force quit option to close Safari. I reopened it and only the default tab was displayed. To reopen the previously open tab, I clicked history uh, and choose, chose reopen all windows from last session. A new window opened displaying all the previously open tabs, after which I was able to close the BSOD tab because JavaScript was disabled. I then turned it back on. I encountered this again and was unable to choose preferences and so was unable to disable JavaScript. So I did some searching and I found a, an Engadget article that details how to create a keyboard shortcut for disabling or enabling JavaScript in Safari to keep things safe. So we will share that because there's a, there's a little terminal command and also um, this, uh, this keyboard shortcut that you can create. So that's, uh, that's super handy because even though Apple uh, with the latest versions of Safari has been very proactive in stopping and very reactive too in stopping these types of uh, kind of browser hijack attacks, they don't stop all of them. And so uh, if you check out this Engadget article, there's a way to write a, the, the terminal command is there and you can, uh, you can tell it how to, how to create a, a keyboard shortcut to do so. So we'll put that link in there. Thanks, James. This is very, very good stuff because it's important. I think. And you know what, Dave? There's another way you can disable JavaScript. Oh, sweet. It's a secret though. <clears throat> Well, in that you can enable it. Now, you can do it from the terminal, but the way I'm going to recommend that you do it, Dave, is there's a dandy little pref pane that I like called Secrets. Oh, and if you go to the Safari right. category, there is a checkbox, Enable Debug Menu, which I think is actually now is listed as the developer, or, or at least in my copy of Safari, it's listed as the developer menu. Okay. But I think they're the same thing. Are they the same thing? I'm pretty sure the same thing. Yes. I'm pretty sure that's the box that you check. And you will get a develop menu, which lets you do all sorts of things. It has different consoles, an error console, a page source you can look at, which you used to be able to do from one of the regular menus, but I don't think you can anymore. So, uh, And one of the choices is disable JavaScript. So, nice. Nice. Yeah, that's that's the that's the steps that the Engadget article takes you through is enabling the develop menu and then assigning not just a clickable <sighs> menu option for for toggling JavaScript, but a keystroke. And it's actually interesting to look through because what you're doing with this thing is making command J equal to, you know, toggle JavaScript. And uh, and it's interesting to see how these defaults commands actually do that and then and then modify the user interface in, in in that way and you can take a look it's pretty cool uh kind of digging under the hood it's a it's an interesting little process either way i think it's fun what do you think john i want to uh, talk about all sorts of things you, you, yeah i know you do <laughs> ah, i want to talk about our first sponsor which is Amazing, as I mentioned in the pre-show or in the pre-roll there at the show. Uh, the folks at DigiDNA have been creating uh, what has become Amazing for years and years. It, it started as DiskAid and really was built as a way, a better way to manage your iOS device content and data than iTunes allows. And that is still exactly what Amazing does. And 
there have been some interesting things, some security holes that Apple has plugged that forced the folks at iMazing to rethink the way they do things. But here's the good news. Uh, they have figured out a way to directly back up apps and data in iOS 9. And it will be ready for the iOS 9 release. Uh, iMazing will enable extracting and restoring of apps selectively, including their data. Cache and temp folders won't yet be included, but it's a huge step forward since iOS 8.3 blocked access to app files. So knowing that this is coming back in iOS 9, which really is right around the corner. I mean, my guess is we're just a few weeks away, right? Yeah. So that's that's killer. Um, something else interesting is that, uh, that the iMazing folks noticed is that Apple has completely rewritten the framework underneath the notes engine, everything from the ground up, they tell me. Uh, and it's now a much more feature rich, uh, application and framework and ready for features such as collaborative editing. Um, notes isn't necessarily, as they say, the most vital data set to tackle with iMazing, but many people dislike syncing something as potentially private and sensitive and so uh iMazing's got support for for that and they've rewritten their infrastructure to support apple's new frameworks in ios 9 which is cool and uh and since may they've been improving a lot of what goes on with iMazing. they haven't added a whole lot of user-facing features but behind behind the scenes a lot has changed and the very latest version which is 124 so update if you've got it and you haven't updated iMazing yet uh, file transfer speeds are twice as fast as they were before. So this is cool stuff. What you can do with iMazing is really control the data that goes on and off of your device. You have songs on there that you want to take off. That was the first thing that they really focused on. Take the songs directly off your iPhone. Try doing that, doing that with iTunes. It's not going to let you. There's just no way, right? You can sync playlists. You can take all your stuff off. You can back up and, and see your contacts you can see your voicemails i mean this is this is cool cool software it's one of those things that i certainly don't use it every day but man i probably use it two or three times a month and when i need it it is exactly what i need uh helps for restoring settings from specific apps as they mentioned right now you have to with ios 8.4 because of the changes in 8.3 you have to do it by modifying a backup and then restoring that backup out but with uh with iOS 9, they'll restore your ability to just do that directly. So you can really kind of muck with an application settings or data set, which is really, really handy and something that saved my bacon quite a few times. I highly recommend it. You got to check this out. Go to iMazing.com. It's one of my favorite pieces of software. A really useful tool once, uh, once you dig in there. iMazing.com. And of course, coupon code MGG saves you 20%. So you're saving quite a bit of money when you go and... Uh, and buy this through our uh, through our coupon code. So thanks to the folks at DigiDNA for making iMazing uh, a, a special discount for all of you here. And thanks to all of you for supporting the folks at, uh, at iMazing. It's a good thing. All right, John. It's time to move on to Bob because, you know, Bob's got, uh, Bob's got interesting things going on. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. So Bob says... I was working away on a pages document imported from word and suddenly I received an attached, uh, he attached it a, a dialogue box that says 
Your system has run out of application memory. To avoid problems with your computer, quit any applications you are not using. And it came up with a force quit dialog. And that was in the context of a force quit dialog box. It showed some of the apps were listed as paused, including mail. Uh, what's going on? He says he, he also sent a screenshot of his uh, memory usage meter in uh, in iStat menus, but it's n- but I'm not sure if that's showing memory compression or actual free memory. My guess is it is the former, but it could be the latter. Uh, but it's showing that there, but that's showing that there's enough memory left. What's going on here? So this is interesting. I've seen this before, where an application has had a memory leak and starts just chewing up RAM. When I've seen this dialog box, it's when the hard drive is starting to fill up and with swap space. And the system says, no, we, we got to start quitting things because we don't have enough hard drive space left for this. Now, that may or may not be what happened in Bob's situation, but, uh, but that's, that's what I've seen. Have you seen this before, John? I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah. And Furby's in the chat room is also saying files, you know, swap files spawning. And that that's that's consistent with what I've seen. So what happened probably is perhaps this this pages document that imported from Word, I don't know, tra- caught, found some some memory leak in in pages and just started chewing up RAM when the system has an application that requires more RAM than the system has. It's going to start saving all this stuff out to disk and at some point the disc is going to run out of space and i've i've seen that before and that's when i've seen this message and you'll get it's weird you'll see in parentheses after some applications in this force quit dialog the word paused and what that means is it's taken that app is still officially running but it's taken that app and saved it out cuz you haven't been using it and so it's decided all right we're just going to save the whole thing out and pause that hopefully we can come back around to it when you uh, when you free up space, which effectively frees up RAM. So application memory in this case is not just RAM, but disk space as well. That that's what I've seen. And and it helps, you know, so there's a couple of things that uh, that I do that to help monitor, monitor this. Right. Number one is in uh, if you use iStat menus, you have the. Uh, the option, if you go into the iStat menus app and go to, and if you don't use iStat menus, I highly recommend it. It puts all sorts of status indicators in your menu bar so that you can have really at a glance views of what's going on with your system. So go into iStat menus, go into memory and choose the display format as traditional, not memory pressure. Uh, also uncheck the box that says show inactive memory as free because that memory is not really free. And as we've seen from OS 10, if something's in inactive memory, it should get purged out and freed up when necessary, but that's not always a good indicator of how resource loaded your system is. So uncheck that box and set display format to traditional and then put the memory up in the menu bar. And you'll see when that memory number gets, you know, below a hundred megs, that's a warning sign for you that you really need to, you know, start quitting some apps. The other cool part is you can click on memory in the, uh, in the iStat menus menu bar and see what, what the top five memory consumers are. Now, sometimes you'll see something like, you know, kernel task. Well, that's more a system wide process that, 
you, it's RAM is used by other things that aren't really reported there. So a lot of times the Twitter app uh, shows up most of its RAM usage in kernel tasks. So you'll see kernel tasks go way down when you quit the Twitter app, that sort of thing. But you also th- see things like Safari, or in this case, you might see the pages is just, you know, out of control. The other thing you get to see there is the swap memory section. And if that number, really, if that number is higher than, you know, let, let's say it should be zero, right? In theory, you're not using any swap space. You have enough RAM for everything that you're going to run. But there's going to be times you're going to run over that. So if it's more than, say, 500 megabytes, then you really know that you're using more RAM than, uh, than you've got. And it's good to quit some apps. So that, that's where that gets helpful. You can, you know, see at a glance what's going on and, and perhaps even see it as it's happening and, and, you know, stop it before you get this warning. That's my feeling on this stuff. Thoughts, John? Huh, that explains that because I was baffled because I, he sent a screenshot and it showed that his memory was not depleted. Right. Right. Okay, so you got to display it in a certain way. Yes. In our stat menus. So you get the big picture. Yeah. So you get the 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 true picture, the truth. That's right. The truth is out there. (laughs) And I think they're coming back. Yeah. The X-Files is coming back for those of you that didn't get the reference. I know. Same. (laughs) Any other thoughts on this question here, John? No, I've, again, I've, I've never, ever seen that message. Well, that's a good sign, right? Well, because I load up my machines with with memory and hard drive. And you probably this though, actually, this machine, you know, well, actually, this machine, because I only you know, in the mini, I only have a 240 gig. Yeah. And um, and I I go off because uh, uh, what is it here? Discade um, or drive gene, the drive genius drive pulse uh, will pester you if you get to a certain threshold of uh, free space. Though it's probably a good thing now that I think about it in this context, because if you're running low on disk space, you're running low on swap potential swap space and terrible things like this could happen. So, right. okay. So it's crazy. Still, I wish you'd be, I wish you'd be able to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, what, uh, so there, you, you said something that, um, that I was going to follow up on. And then, and then I came around, yo, you, you said that you, you load your systems up with, with lots of Ram, which is true, but you also probably even just sort of out of habit now, actively manage what apps are running or proactively manage what apps are running. I know I certainly do. Uh, you know, if I notice that I've been running my machine for a while, I'll go through and just quit apps that I haven't used in a while. If I've just kind of left them lingering out there, just because I know things like this can and will happen. And so it is good to just quit apps uh, that you're not using and let them relaunch later, especially if you've got an SSD. It doesn't take that long to launch an app, but, uh, but quitting them and, and oh, yeah. leaving all the resources free for someone else is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I'll do that on both machines as yeah, well, every right. now and then. I will, uh, well, I command tab, which of course tabs you through your uh, apps. Yeah. Of course, command shift tab scrolls you through them backwards. And then I think if well, you hit Q, yeah, quit Q from there will quit from once you've got command tab up. So you hold down the command key, you tap tab and that'll bring up the list. And as long as you keep the command key down, 
you know, you can tab or, or shift tab and go back and forth through the list. And then, uh, and you can also use the arrows. Once you've, once you've hit command tab, you can use the arrow keys to go back and forth. If you, uh, if you want to do it with two hands. And then once you get, you know, highlighted on an app that, uh, that's problematic, you just hit Q and it'll, it'll send a quit command to the app. Hopefully the app quits. If there's a problem, it might not, but it sends a normal system quit command to it. So it's pretty good. That's pretty good stuff. All right. Ready for Harry? Harry asks, this week I sent my daughter off to college equipped with her brand new 13-inch Retina Display MacBook Pro. About halfway between uh, home and college, I realized that with her away from home, she would not be backing up to our time capsules here at home. Uh Uh-oh. No backups? Three hours away? Recipe for disaster. We did pick up a two terabyte external USB three drive for her with the idea that she would hook it up nightly and let carbon copy cloner do a nightly clone. When we went over this, I got an, ah, I can probably remember to do that. Dad response from her. What was think? What was I thinking? I might remember to do something like that, but she's a busy college freshman who is not a geek. A set it and forget it. Backup strategy is what she needs. Since there is no way she can hook up anything like a time capsule to the network. But she does have access to a very fast internet connection and good Wi-Fi almost everywhere on campus. This makes me think that an online backup solution might work best for her. What advice do you geeks have for a simple, easy-to-use solution that requires minimal interaction to keep up with a regular backup strategy that offers easy recovery should the worst happen to a file or if her SSD were to fail? So a couple of things here. Um, First of all, getting emails like this scares me because I'm only a few years away from perhaps having that exact same drive uh, to college and I actually get a little choked up thinking about it. So we're just going to move on from that for now. Um, carbon copy cloner is a fine solution and I, I know both John and I here use it, but there's nothing that to be said that you can't use time machine with her external drive. And that's even more automatic, right? All she has to do is make sure the drive is plugged in and, and obviously configured to work with time machine. And then her Mac will back up to that. So, so that would, that would have been my choice uh, in that particular moment is to use time machine instead of carbon copy cloner. Um, yes, you get a clone and all of that other stuff with CCC, but in terms of the kind of, you know, Ron Popeil set it and forget it concept, you want to use a uh, time machine for, for that. That said, your concept of an online backup is even better because it doesn't require her to remember to plug the external drive in. And so along those lines, there are two pieces of software, two packages, two services that I like when it comes to online backups. Crash plan and Backblaze. Now, Backblaze has a way more Mac-like experience. It is absolutely, hands down, the smoothest, uh, simplest for a Mac user backup uh, that you're going to get. And, and, and so, if you're okay paying for, and you, if you don't want to have to deal with a geeky solution, and you're obviously okay paying for a, a subscription to, to Backblaze, that's what I would go with, and I would stop right there, and you're good to go. However, CrashPlan offers some interesting things. Yeah, it runs, their app is a Java app, but it's not a Java app in, a, in an insecure way. It's actually very, very secure. 
Um, and it's totally fine to install the Java the way that CrashPlan wants you to have it installed on your Mac to use it. And it does look like a Mac app. It's just a little bit quirky and geeky. However, they offer two things. They offer an online backup service where you pay to backup to CrashPlan servers just like you do with Backblaze. And again, if that's all you're going to do, use Backblaze instead. However, they also offer you a peer-to-peer backup service where you could run CrashPlan on a Mac at home and configure her crash plan on her Mac in her dorm room to back up to your Mac at home. And this way, you've got a copy of the data locally. The big problem with restoring a large data set from uh, an online backup service is you need to now download all of your data before you have access to it. And you can, and, and they all have ways of, you know, you can ship them a hard drive and this, that, and the other thing, but it's a big process. It's going to take a while. Whereas if the data is at your house, um, you've got access to it. So, you know, you don't need to download it. You've got it right there. My mom, I do this with my mom's computer. I doubt that my mother even knows that we have this configured. I mean, I told her I set her for online backups, but she doesn't care or realize. She just sees that the backups happen. They're being backed up to me here. I have it all. I have CrashPlan set up on my disk station. It's an even geekier solution than what I'm describing here, but it works. It's awesome. And her stuff backs up and, you know, works great. So that's um, that, that Backblaze is probably what you want. But if you want to go geeky, then crash plan's pretty cool. And you don't pay anything, by the way, if you just do the peer-to-peer crash plan. Obviously, their hope is that you would also then pay for, you know, their online backup service and store some stuff off-site with them. But, uh, but the app itself is free for, for this use case. They don't offer any support officially. Unofficially, I've had great support from them. So that's my uh, that's my feelings on this, John. What do you uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I was poking around. There's one, you know, we never really looked at them. I remember seeing them at a past MacWorld, but Dolly Drive. Oh, well, we looked at them pretty heavily. We talked about them quite a bit here. Yeah, I don't think I ever really looked at it seriously. I mean, I, okay. I remember them demonstrating it. Okay, but I never really. You never used Dolly it. Drive. Okay. Yeah, I used it for <laughs> for a little while. It's um, I don't know. It's fine, but the, the Backblaze is simpler. Dolly Drive was always kind of weird um, to me. They had a great initially. They had a great idea, right? It was using the Time Machine engine, but kind of redirecting the backups to their cloud server. But it was kind of fraught with you know every time there was an OS update, it got a little weird. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's what I remember too. And it looks like they've changed that now. Yeah, yeah that's not how it works. App. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they claim all in one backup, file sync, cloud storage, and clone. Yeah. That sounds. Yeah. I, to be fair, I should probably give them another shake um, because I, I, I liked it at first. And then, like I said, the OS updates sort of got in the way of that. But they, they because of that, like you said, they got around and, and now don't rely on the Time Machine engine. They have their own thing. And, um, yeah, we'll put. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I can't recommend it only because I haven't used it. I think I've still got an account, so probably worth digging into. So I will. I will take this as a as an opportunity to dig in. You should too. It's good stuff. Yeah, they got a free trial. Cool. So why not? Yeah, and maybe it'll be extra nice to us because we do what we do. Oh, they're they're good. I, they're really good folks. They sponsored a Cirque to Mac party uh, years ago, and. I'm, you know, kind of in their, in their initial heyday, um, when, when they were doing the time machine thing, 
It was, uh, it was good stuff. Yeah. We talked about it quite a bit on here, but again, it, it's been a while and, and I, I haven't, I haven't checked it out in a while. So I can't, I can't speak to it uh, other than that. They're good folks over there. That's all I know. Yeah. And then another thought for, uh, you know, especially, you know, if you're off to school and you need to back up your papers and documents and, or have them accessible, um, you know, of course, something like Dropbox totally. or BitCasa that offer you a small amount of, uh, of free storage. Like, actually, I was using Dropbox the other day where, where it's really um, convenient or, or the use case that I like is so uh, you and I, Dave, um, and probably a lot of you, if you listen to a past show and got yourself certificates for doing email, is... Um, Often you have to propagate your certificates to multiple machines. So actually what I have is a folder in my Dropbox where I put the uh, P12 backup files. And then I go to my other machine, double click on them, and it imports them into the keychain of my other machine that needs these certificates. So here's my concern with that. You have just now announced that you put your private keys on a uh, server, right? Because this syncs to Dropbox. That is only secure until a subpoena, right? Because if, if Dropbox gets a subpoena that they will fight it and and they have proven this and and stood up for their users. But if the subpoena is valid and held up, then Dropbox has Uh to turn over your data to the, uh, to the authorities that, that have the subpoena. And now the authorities have your private keys. No, they don't. Yeah, they do. They have your P12 file, which contains your private keys. Uh, which is password protected. Yeah, but that password is easily crackable when you compare it to the uh, difficulty of cracking a private key for um, okay for PKI stuff. Yeah. Okay, all I'm saying is that it's, you know, it's, the private key is there, but you need to provide... When you create a P12 file, you have to password protect it. Correct. Correct. But it's, you know, so I, I do the same so thing. So someone would need to get those files and would need to get the password. And then crack the password. My private key. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I put them, I put them in, uh, I, I do exactly the same thing as you. And and clearly I thought about this because uh, because I almost put them on Dropbox and I thought, wait a minute, what's the point of that? So now I store my private keys uh, in this exactly the same way, but I store them uh, in a um, a folder on my disk station that's accessible from everywhere, and for me only. And you know, and then that way it's cloud accessible, yeah. but not well, but not on anyone your, else's uh, cloud. Well, unless someone hacks your disk station, right? <laughs> It'd be easier to hack my Mac, I think, which also has the private keys on it. But yes, that that is a very fair point. That's right. But it's fun. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's the price of convenience. Yes, someone could. But yeah. Potentially. To, it, it, as far as, so, so you, we got off on a tangent because you talked about using Dropbox to store your private keys. But in terms of a college student storing data and that sort of stuff, or really anyone storing data that is not vitally sensitive, then Dropbox is absolutely the easy way to do it. Uh yeah, absolutely. Or BitCasa because they have both uh, apps for multiple platforms. So the other thing I like, you know, about both, both Dropbox and BitCasa and 
and some others as well. But in, the, in that case, you know, there's apps for, of course, my Mac and also my iOS devices. Yeah. So anything that I do put in the cloud, I can access, assuming the device can understand the document, which iOS doesn't always. <laughs> yeah. My, so here's my here's my thing. And there's lots of cloud storage solutions. Uh, you know, there's like you said, you keep bringing up Bitcasa, but there's there's many others that, that offer a little bit of free storage and, and then you can pay for more. You can get referrals for more or whatever. Um, you're probably going to need Dropbox anyway. Right. Uh, so if you're if you're going to use one, it's going to have to be Dropbox because at some point someone else mm-hmm. using Dropbox is going to want to share data with you. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, mm. try and reinvent the wheel on this. Now, if you find that you are using up all your storage space on your free Dropbox account with all the files that you're sharing with other people, because I'm sure the, the Dropbox wins because everybody has Dropbox or a critical mass has Dropbox. Critical mass does not have Bitcasa, right? However, what that means is you, if you get to the point where you say, ah, my Dropbox is now full, I don't have room for my documents there because I have all these shared documents. And yes, that's how Dropbox's storage works. Then it does make sense to go and get like a Bitcasa account that you use for only your personal stuff and then leave your Dropbox stuff for that which you share. Man, that's exactly what I do here. Uh, I actually have plenty of Dropbox storage, but I choose to store all my personal files on my disk station so that they're not synced with the world with Dropbox but I still have a Dropbox account because we do things where we sync between us and I have stuff that I sync between everybody else and there's no way I'm going to get everybody on to oh, something else. Sure. Right. You know what I mean? And of course, and the final one, which I would argue may have critical mass, they keep changing the name because they <laughs> love to do it. Um, if you're part of the Microsoft monolith uh, or <laughs> the Microsoft machine, then of course there's their OneDrive, which I think is, is uh, integrated uh, quite well with their uh, office products. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would argue, well, it depends if you're using office products, then OneDrive makes a lot of sense. If you're not, then you might want to look at Google drive, right? You get 15 gigs there. Oh, of course. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm using that too. Right. Right. I'm looking at my menu bar and just going over the ones. Yeah. Of course you, you and I use that to, uh, to, uh, collaborate on the, uh, agenda. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it, it's, um, there's a lot of these things. I try to limit the number of, of them that I run, but it's, it, it, it's, it's hard being a geek. You know, I, I run the Google thing because I can back up my photos there. I also do the back, photo backup to Flickr. I'm tempted to do the photo backup to Amazon because I'm a prime customer, but it's like, where exactly do all my photos need to be? It's good to have backups, but holy cow. Um, I don't know. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's but I think I just covered all the cloud. I think we, we just covered all the cloud-based solutions that we use that you can possibly uh, share with others if you, uh, I, if you need to. I will throw this out there because it is currently how I sync my data with my disk station is I use BitTorrent Sync. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you it, love that thing. I do because it's, <laughs> it doesn't store it. The cloud is you with BitTorrent Sync. It's, it's you know, the, the part of the problem that they have with BitTorrent Sync is, is that it's branded with the name BitTorrent, which is great because it works and everybody knows that it's worked and it has this, you know, decades long history. But when you first think of BitTorrent sync, you think, Oh, my data is going to be going across this peer to peer network. And I don't know who's going to have it. No, 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 no. A it's encrypted and B it's only peer to peer amongst the machines that you add to your, to your swarm. So your daughter could put her data in a BitTorrent sync folder 
on her Mac and you could have that same folder on one of your Macs. And now all of her data is BitTorrent synced and it just works and, and you've got it at home too, or she's got it at home on a, on a Mac there as long as that Mac's running. So that's now I think we've really covered them all. I highly recommend BitTorrent sync. It's, it's good stuff as you know. All right. Where are we here? I have no idea. Oh yeah. Michael, we will, uh, we will see what Michael has to say. He says, I've got two external discs attached to my 2012 MacBook pro that I use for time machine backups and super duper clones. I run the time machine backups hourly throughout the day and the super duper clone once per day in the afternoon. This is my work setup. I remove my machine nightly to take it home on the road or on the road when traveling. Is there a way to put the machine to sleep nightly without first having to manually eject the external drives? I usually remember to turn off the time machine and eject both drives and then close the lid. But sometimes I'm in a rush and I get that dang disk not ejected properly error when I turn the machine back on or wake it up. Is there a script or some way to automate this end of day routine? So... This is interesting because you do, you have to eject those disks. Otherwise it's going to eventually cause some file system corruption. But here's a couple of thoughts. First, you use super duper to do your clone. Uh, and I'm, I'm 99% certain that super duper still allows this because they used to, uh, you want super duper to eject that disc after immediately after you do each clone. Uh, first of all, it would solve this problem for you. And secondly, it keeps you from accidentally opening files on that clone. I had an issue this week where I'm not going to go through the, the scenario because it's sort of irrelevant, but I wound up with my clone mounted on my desktop and I didn't realize it was because it's always ejected. And, uh, and I use carbon copy cloner, but I used to use super duper and it works just fine at this. It mounts before it uh, does the backup and then ejects immediately thereafter. I had a, I, I went to uh and so I saw that it was, it was mounted. I'm like, Oh, I got to eject it. So I went to eject it in the finder and it says it's in use by numbers. And so I'm like, Oh, what documents open on there? So what I did was I launched activity monitor and I double clicked on numbers and I went to open files and ports. And I looked in that list for the volume name of my clone. And sure enough, I had a spreadsheet open from my clone drive. Now, thankfully that particular spreadsheet, I was only using to read data from, but it could have been a disaster if I had written data to that spreadsheet and saved it. I, hadn't, I would have had no idea that when I just searched for that file and it brought it up, it brought up the copy from the clone. So you definitely want your clone drive ejected regardless. So that would solve one of your problems. Now, as for the other one, it doesn't get quite that simple. You've got a couple of things that you could do. Um, control plane app is the first thing that comes to mind at controlplaneapp.com. This is an app that performs actions based on specific either manual or environmental triggers. So ejecting a disk or mounting a disk is something that can happen. I use it to remount all my network volumes when my machine wakes up from sleep. So I have a trigger that is wake up from sleep and an action that is mount this network drive. I actually have several actions. And so then I, I put them all together in what's called a context and I say, when it's when this trigger happens, i.e. the machine has woken from sleep, change to this context, wake from sleep, which then goes and mounts those drives. So you could have it be time-based and say, you know, at five in the afternoon, 
go eject these discs. You might list, you might miss one final time machine backup, but uh, because the disc is offline, but at the very least it would, um, it, you know, it would, it would eject that disc and keep you from, from getting this error. Uh, that's, that's really, man, I don't, I can't think of anything else. Anyway, John, you got any thoughts on this? Well, strictly in the context of ejecting volumes. Yeah. Uh, automator is a dandy solution for that. It's one of the explicit pieces. So if you open automator and you want to create a workflow, uh, it'll then show you, Oh, here's the apps that have, uh, automator actions and finder has an eject disk action. Right. So, but, but wait, hang he, on. He, I, I, but he can just go to the finder and cl- I mean, with that, he would still need to click and launch the automator action to eject the disk. He could easily eject it from the finder. The, the problem is he wants it to happen automatically because he doesn't think about it. Right. In which case, hmm. right, that's what I was thinking. Control plan. I mean, something timed there's, there's nothing there is no, uh, it would be handy if there was it. Maybe there could be. Is there a way to trigger something that happens at system sleep? Right. You know, we have login items. Why don't we have a sleep items thing that just sits. And when the machine is about to go to sleep, all right, now go do all these things. And one of the things could be, it, it goes and triggers that. Is that possible for an app to do? Because if so, that would be the thing. Because then it could trigger, like you said, your your automator action is the thing that could could run. I use automator to 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 dismount my. Uh, in fact, I have an automator action that dismounts drives, and I have it in my login items folder, and I have it unmount my clone drive because the clone drive is set to auto mount, like all disks are on the Mac, and uh, so I just have it unmount it when my when my machine boots up. So yeah. Is there is there a sleep items or even well shutdown items wouldn't help in this in this case but sleep items huh right right I mean energy saver you can set a sleep time in there but you can't attach anything to it unfortunately right all you can do is say sleep whenever you define it to right yeah 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 huh something to noodle over yeah. I know. Possible to run scripts on sleep and wake. So somebody found, uh, Alex found a uh, Stack Exchange article talking about sleep, wake, cannot trigger scripts, but third-party solutions have been developed. And so there's a couple of things in there. One is called Scenario. Another is called Power Manager. So this would be the thing. Uh, sleep watcher may be of use from the description. It can be used to execute a Unix command when the Mac or the display of the Mac goes to sleep or wakes up or after a given time. Um, yeah. And control plane has sleep options. So control plane might be your option. Yeah. All right. I'll put a link to this. Thanks, Alex. It's a good find. Great find. In fact, so we'll put a link to, uh, to that, but control plane might still be your thing. And if it's not, this article indicates some more. We'll, we'll, We'll mess around with this. This could be interesting. On sleep. All right. Fun stuff. I like it. You want to, uh, you want to take us to Chris, John? Why not? All right. Chris writes and asks, 
Have you heard of an issue where a machine running the latest version of Yosemite won't mount an external USB 3.0 drive? I have a WD My Passport drive that, no matter what I do, will not mount under Yosemite. After doing all the standard troubleshooting, running cocktail, creating a new user account, erasing the mustache of Wozniak's picture. <laughs> ah, I still can't get the drive to mount on either the production Mac Pro or my personal Mac. I went to Apple's support page and searched for Yosemite won't mount USB 3 drives and found this thread. And uh, we'll post a link to the thread. And a lot of people had suggestions of various sorts of what to do. He said he noticed that some people mentioned something called KEXT Utility 2.6.1. And I looked around and I, and I found that utility as well. So KEXT, of course, means kernel extension which is the way that um, you can extend the functionality of the OS, or basically most kernel extensions are ways for the software to talk to various hardware. Um, most, but not always. So it kind of makes sense to look at this here because it sounds like he's having an issue talking to USB 3 hardware. <laughs> um, and he said he was kind of concerned about running this because it didn't, uh, as far as I know, you can't get it in the app store and, and the sites where you can get it from. Uh, some of them are questionable. So, um, and the thing is, I didn't even run it. So I downloaded it and, and no, I did run it actually. Did I run it? No, I'm not sure if I ran it. No, I think I downloaded it, ran it and I looked at it. I didn't have it do anything. I mean, I launched it and I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, but one thing that it does uh, is it can, I think it can rebuild your uh, kernel extension cache. So here, here, here's, so I got back to him on, on this and, and here's a few thoughts here. So if the thought is that a kernel extension, specifically one that is meant to deal with USB three devices is busted, um, you may want to start up in safe mode. Because one thing that it does, last I checked, is it does rebuild this kernel extension cache. That's right. Yeah. And various other craft here. So I suggested that. So start up the machine in safe mode and, and see if that fixes it. Uh, the utility that he found is something that I think I've used in the past. But the key things that it does. Um, well, another utility that clears out the extension cache is also Onyx. So Onyx, if you go to cleaning system. There's kernel and extensions and some other caches, you know, clearing those out as well. Though, though I think those are the most important for this purpose here. Um, another would be, hey, you know, repairing permissions. I don't know if the permissions on the on the extension are wrong. I don't know. Um, and the last piece of advice that was in the article uh, is that you can go to the terminal and you can run disk utility. So, uh, so one thing, of course, is you could run disk utility and see if you see this disk, and then it sounds like you could not. You can also go to the terminal and run disk utility. And there's a handy-dandy way to, to run it from the terminal and get a list of all of your drives, and that's by typing disk util space list. And you'll see the drive or drives, um, I believe mounted or not, uh, that are connected to your computer. Right? Yeah, and I think, and That's I right. think I suggested, yeah. and and I think, uh, and I think, 
And to wrap this up here, I think uh, uh, got a response saying, yep, I tried all the stuff you suggested and still can't see the drive. Uh, dude, I think the drive's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, if you're not seeing any trace of it with either disk utility or in system information, you know, if it's connected via USB, then in my humble opinion, the uh, the yeah, the drives, the drive shot, the drive or the, the interface or the cable. Right. I mean, it. it, it but assuming you you've tried all of ah, those things. Right. I mean, it, it's not seeing it. So your USB port is bad. The cable is bad. The interface on the drive is bad or the drive itself is bad. And you can isolate a few of those things pretty easily. Try the cable on a different port. Try a different cable. Okay. You know, now we're now it's time to move on. Yeah. My guess would be the interface board, because even if the drive itself is is busted, you know, if the interface in the drive is active, you should at least see something. Well, work. Not or maybe not. That has not been the case with bad S or the SSDs that we have seen die when there right. is no drive plugged into the interface board, which is what happens when an SSD dies. It just doesn't announce itself to that board. So effectively, there's nothing plugged in. The interface will show nothing to the Mac. So it, I think, it, you know, it, it's uh, I mean, it could be the interface board, but just bear in mind that the. It, it could also mean that the drive is dead. So it uh, depends on the type of drive with, with a uh, spindle drive. My experience has been that even when the drive is dead, it still shows up somehow in system, you know, uh, uh, information. It's not, it's not accessible, <laughs> uh, but it shows up. So yeah, just bear that. Right. Yeah. And actually, yeah, you, uh, the cable, I hadn't even thought of that. That's uh Hey, you got bad cables. It happened. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fun stuff. Hey, I want to circle back, John, uh, to our sleep thing. A control plane will almost certainly do this for listener Michael. But uh, Martin in the chat room found a piece of software and uses a piece of software from St. Clair software called Jettison. And it is built to do exactly this. Uh, you can have it eject your disks kind of manually by clicking it. But it also uh, will eject them as it goes to sleep. So that's that's the answer. Either control plane or jettison or or you know uh, something else. But apps do exist to do this, Michael. So it's a simple, fun conversation with a simple answer. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. What do you think about this? Uh, you mentioned repairing permissions, John, as part of your thing. So I want to I want to have an unprepped conversation with you about. This discussion that El Capitan's system integrity protection uh, negates the need for a repair permissions function in El Capitan. Supposedly. Right. Yeah. Well, according to Apple. Uh, So here's what repair permissions does and doesn't do. Repair permissions looks at all the receipts in the library receipts folder, which is where all apps that have been installed, at least using Apple's method, which mostly means Apple's apps, but perhaps sometimes others. uh, It looks through all of those and collects what all of the uh, permissions should be on both a system level and the applications level. It does not touch your user data. Repair permissions does not touch that. There is a repair user permissions function that does. But your user data is completely untouched by repair permissions. It is system-wide stuff and application stuff. And so it goes through and uh, 
and 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 collects all of that. And then if you verify permissions, it tells you if everything is in sync with what that says or if it's not what is out. And if it's if you say repair permissions, it then goes and syncs everything up. The concept, as Apple has explained it in their developer docs, is that with El Capitan, we move to a rootless mode where users cannot change those permissions. And that means that other apps cannot change those permissions. And that's that whole system integrity protection thing. And so because of that, those permissions would never get changed. The installer will take care of setting the permissions properly. And you needn't worry your pretty little head about it. That's what that's essentially the gist of it. And on the surface, that seems seems legit. What do you think, John? Well, if they get it right. Right. Well, but if they got it, if they got it wrong, it would have been wrong already. Right. I mean, the repair permissions thing would have would have gotten it wrong to begin with. The, The idea is that it sets it right when you install it. And then something else can change it. Potentially. I don't know. I'll have to see how it pans out. Yeah. Yeah. It says uh, the uh, the Mac developer library release notes that I think are just public. Yeah, seems to be public. Say uh, system file permissions are automatically protected and updated during software updates. The repair permissions function is no longer necessary. And to be fair, when you run repair permissions from Onyx or one of these other utilities, all it's doing is triggering Apple's repair permissions script. So it's not that Onyx has a repair permissions function. It just triggers Apple's existing script. So if Apple takes it out, it's not like all these third-party utilities that repair permissions are going to be able to, you know, still do it. If it's gone, it's gone. It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just funny, though, because you mentioned it. The thing is, is that the permissions being wrong should, in theory, never happen. Why it does, right? Yeah. Well, this is the thing that gets me in the first place with, you know, the current OS is, you know, why why do permissions get, you know, how, how do they even get changed from what they should be? Well, let's say you can go change them right now, right? You can do a, a, oh, sure. a sudo from the, com- from the command line yeah. and then, and right. And then, uh, and then chmod, which is change mode. And then you can change all the permissions that you want in El Capitan. You cannot do that. Even if you do sudo, you cannot do that, right? You are running rootless. And so you have less control over your system in El Capitan than you did, uh, than you currently do. In Yosemite. Now that in and of itself is worthy of a discussion, right? Because that's sort of the, that's the scary part here is that, whoa, what do you mean? It's getting to be like iOS. I can't touch parts of my system. Well, I don't know about that. Right. And there are ways around this. You have to enable the root and, you know, go through all that stuff. Uh, but that's why to answer your question, that's why it gets changed now, because any time you authenticate an installer, when it comes up and it says, hey, I need your password to install this app, it theoretically has the ability to change any system wide stuff, including permissions that goes away with El Capitan. So theoretically, yeah. nothing could change. So nothing will. But you and I have been using computers long enough that I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> Uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I have a hard time believing it, but we'll see. We'll see. I, t- it, I get, I get why Apple does it. it. It fits in the Apple paradigm of don't worry your pretty little head about it. We've got this under control. Yeah. yeah. But I, have, I have that reaction. I don't know. We'll see. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I found a little ditty here on system integrity protection and they also talk about, this is getting really geeky here, but Hey, that's yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's why. But, um, so Yosemite, it, it's interesting though, if I think they're going to do something similar. So you, Yosemite, you know, we were just actually, this is kind of relevant. So we're talking about, uh, we were just talking about kernel extensions, you know, specifically USB, but you know, there are lots of kernel extensions, which you can of course see if you want to, if you go into system information, I think software and extensions, you can see all the system, all the uh, kernel extensions installed on your system. Sure. Yosemite kind of enforce them having to be signed, which relates to the whole certificate and key thing we talked about and that they have to be, if they're not signed, signed being, you know, in, in a sense of, you know, security measure, uh, Yosemite won't load it kind of. (laughs) Right. 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 (laughs) Because they have, and we talked about it in a, prior, in a prior show, and I found this when I was um, dabbling with installing a kernel extension that I wanted to add. And I'm like, wait, why is it loading this version and not that version? They have an exception list saying, okay, well, make sure they're signed unless they're in the big long list of ones that we know aren't signed, but we still think are okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. But actually, oh, I see in this article too, it says so El Capitan, ooh, in theory, is going to kind of uh, put those off to the side. Oh, okay. So they're getting rid of, it sounds like they're getting rid of this exception mechanism as well. Okay. Right, right. Well, this no. sounds like it's going to cause all sorts. Uh, this, this could make app developer, this could make life very exciting for people developing apps. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's been a, a big concern since June when Apple first announced this. Is and, and lots of app developers have said, uh, what, you know, there's, there's stuff we can't do anymore. Even if the user wants to let us do it. Right. I mean, I, I get that we want to, you know, the user needs to be in control, but this is actually undoing some of that. The user is not in control and that's where it gets, you know, dicey. It's like iOS. You are not in control of your device fully. I mean, you can smash it if you want. That'll end most of your problems. But, you know, you you can't tweak it without jailbreaking it. Jailbreak your Mac? It's an interesting thought. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. All right. I know. It's interesting. I want to talk about our our Mac Geek Gab Premium for a moment here, John. I promised in the last show that I would. And uh, and so I'm going to fulfill that promise. Mac Geek Gab Premium is, uh, was created largely in, in response to, to many of you folks that wanted to find a way to support the show directly. And we certainly appreciate all of your support. You can find out about this at MacGeekGab.com slash premium. That will bring you to the page where you can sign up and you can make a one-time financial contribution. You can make a recurring contribution that happens monthly for 10 bucks or semi-annually, semi-annually, bi-annually, bi-annually for, uh, God, what do I have at, at 25? So a little bit, a little bit less. If you, if you want to head down that path, that's any, any of the above is fine. Welcome. Very much appreciated. And 
it gets you a couple of things. First and foremost, you're supporting the show directly and we really appreciate it. That is the goal of, of the premium setup. And, and obviously we're very upfront about it because it's what you folks came to us with. We really appreciate it. We put a lot of hard work in. We have awesome sponsors that really kind of help us uh, with the foundation of what we do here. And having this from you really helps us go the extra mile. It really, really makes a big difference. So there's that. As our thanks to you, we do two things. Uh, number one, we offer you a premium email address. That's premium at MacGeekGab.com. That is answered first. We do try to get to everything. Uh, and most weeks we succeed. So uh, don't be surprised if it's not a whole lot different. But you do get priority there. And we do try to give the, that stuff a little bit of extra time. Although sometimes there's questions that come into the regular box that deserve extra time and, and make sense uh, for us to really spend time with and feature on the show. And that's just how it works. So that's number one. Number two is we do our uh, premium gifts typically about once a year. We go through anybody that has contributed uh, at least $100 since the last gift went out or since it, once you hit that hundred dollar level, it might take you three years to get there. It might take you 10 months. It might take you one month. We have many of you that have chosen to do a one-time donation of a hundred bucks. And you do that. Actually many, there, there's quite a few of you that do it several times a year. And we are humbled by that. It's really quite awesome. But whenever it takes, whenever you get there, once you hit that hundred dollar tier, you get put on a list. And the next time that we send out stuff, we've sent out uh, water, liquid carrying vessels so far mugs and water bottles we'll come up with something different for the next one uh, obviously we're open to ideas uh, we try to keep the cost down so that we're not just giving you your hundred bucks back in another way because the point is for it to support the show um, so we try to keep the cost down and, and make it special but not overly cost prohibitive so uh, that's that's how premium works check it out macgeekup.com slash premium and a huge thank you to everyone that is a premium subscriber, a huge thank you to everyone that's a listener. It, uh, it really means a lot all the way around. And I just wanted to take a moment. It's been a little while since we explained that. So I wanted to take a little bit and explain that for you because some folks were asking. So there you go. From the horse's mouth, assuming you think of me as a horse. Uh, we have a couple of questions left, and I think we have time for uh, maybe... Maybe two of them. So we'll do Michael and I think Chris, because that's a, that was an interesting one. And then, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Michael asks, different Michael, same name. I heard Dave mention on a recent show that uh, he uses a separate partition on his Mac for iTunes. I was curious about the potential advantages or disadvantages of doing this. I've had Macs for many, many years, but have never partitioned the hard drive. So just a bit of clarity. I do use a separate partition for my iTunes data, but that separate partition is a separate partition because it's on a separate disk. Um, I have a 512 gig SSD in my iMac downstairs in the office, and I have my main iTunes library on that machine, but I don't want it taking up. It's, you know, several hundred gigabytes. I don't want it chewing up that whole drive. So I have a separate um, Seagate backup plus fast, actually four terabyte drive that I connect to it. And my iTunes library is one of the things that's on that drive. So yes, it's a separate partition, but only because it's a separate disc. And, and, that, and I do recommend doing iTunes that way. There's no real benefit to storing iTunes on your SSD. It's not going to, you know, having that, that slightly faster access to it isn't going to make a huge difference or really even any noticeable difference. So, so that's, 
that's where that comes from. Another quick question from Chris is, uh, Chris writes, I'm considering a Synology DS1815 Plus, an 8-bay unit, but I'm curious as to what drives you would consider putting in this 8-bay. I know not green, despite uh, your and John's occasional choice of these, but I've been hearing more and more that the, uh, that I've been hearing that more than five of the Western digital red drives in a NAS may prove to be a bad idea due to vibrations. Do you have any thoughts on this? So I hadn't heard about this before, John. Uh, and I did some research on these Western digital red drives because that is what has typically been recommended. Although now they're on the enterprise drives or the black drives that are uh, better for NAS, but uh, the red drives certainly aren't bad for it. Or at least I had never heard they were. There are a lot of comments out there though, about folks trying to put more than five of them in tower configurations. And the sixth one sometimes won't mount because the way the vibrations work in the uh, in a lot of these towers, it actually keeps the drive from spinning properly or mounting properly, or perhaps keeps the motherboard from keeping a connection to the drive. So I reached out to the. I couldn't find anything about this being a problem with Synology stuff or really any NAS, to be honest. And I reached out to Synology and they replied, Synology units have a built-in dampening system that helps vibration involving the drives, so there is no issue with going with more than five of them here. So, hopefully there's your answer. Don't do it in a tower, but feel free in a Synology NAS, and probably any other NAS. I mean, that would be my guess, is that they've all kind of solved this problem, because they're built to hold more drives, whereas a tower, eh, more than five drives, is probably not what somebody had in mind. At least that's my thought on it. Had you ever heard of that, John? No, it's interesting. No, that's really, I mean, I would think, yeah. I mean, if you get a, uh, <laughs> substandard enclosure, you may run into problems like that, but I've, I mean, I've put together arrays, uh, you know, especially in the corporate space with way more than five drives and I've never run into something like that. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. It's interesting. All right. We might have time for one quick one. Is there anything on the, on the list here, John? Or are we better off just pushing off to next week? Um, I think Ed, just because uh, the solution right. to this yeah, go. Uh, applies to a number of uh, situations go. here. So, oh my gosh, let me bring it up here. Okay. Ed writes, my niece inherited a MacBook Air from her father who passed away recently. Oh. They don't know the password for the login, and I think it has FileVault encryption. Is there a way I can attach it to my Mac using target disk mode and just reformat the internal SSD and reinstall a new OS? And normally, Dave, the answer would be no, because in order to get a FileVault 2 encrypted drive mounted, you've got to provide the password, right? Oh, right. However, now this applies, and actually this applies also to a, um, a problem that we had in the past of someone that was having a problem with their um, fusion drive. Remember this one? It was a fusion drive, yeah. and they were getting a weird report of free space and stuff like that. As it turns out, the solution to both of these problems uh, is something you can solve if you get down and dirty into uh, our pal, the terminal. 
And so there's a dandy article here called Erasing a Fall Vault 2 Encrypted Volume. Uh, and I'm not going to read the article to you, but basically what it, um, what it suggests that you do. So you have to go into the terminal. You have to do a little um, magic with the um, uh, disutility command, the, the one that we actually just mentioned, right? I, I believe it's disutility uh, you know, list. And what you want to do is you're going to be looking for, uh, I think what they call a logical, uh, logical volume group. Okay. Okay. So this is an aspect of, of core storage where sometimes when you're doing something interesting like file vault or a fusion drive, it's going to create something called a logical volume group. Uh, logical volume group uh, has this thing called a UUID, which is a unique universal identifier, I think. But it's this big, long uh, string of numbers and letters that, that is supposed to be unique, and, and it, it's pretty much guaranteed to be. But here's what you want to do. So uh, as I mentioned, you want to run the disutility command. So actually what you do is, yeah, you run disutil space CS, which stands for core storage, right? Space list. And you're going to get a, a pretty detailed list of all of the pieces of your drive. You then got to get this UUID for the encrypted hard drive. And then you type in disutil space CS space delete space. And then that logical volume group, UUID. And lo and behold, once you do that, it will reformat. Nice. So drive you, you just have to, you have storage to, drive. So you're kind of circumventing. Yeah. So you're circumventing. File Vault, in that you're basically getting down and dirty and erasing something using core storage, at which point you can, it, it then revives itself as a, according to this, uh, HFS plus volume. So, yeah. So it, I, I think if I, if I can boil this down, File Vault, a File Vault volume is actually a collection or it, in, inside of a container. And the first part of the container says, hey, I'm a File Vault volume and here's some information about it. And then once you've, and, and and then, you know, you go and enter the right key and it decrypts the other part of this container that that then mounts the volume and it appears as a normal Mac volume when that happens. So in order to erase that, you can't mount the volume because you don't have the key, but you can just go and delete the entire container. And to do that, you get there in the terminal. Seems like that's the right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's and similarly. And similarly, if your uh, fusion drive is whack, right. uh, doing something similar, because what happens is when you whack this logical volume group, this utility will then come up and say, oh, your fusion drive is screwed up. You want me to rebuild it? Yeah. Or reportedly, right. that's what happens. I don't have a fusion drive. so Yeah, that, no, but that makes sense. And that, that's also the process you go through when you make a fusion drive if you're trying to do it on a system that doesn't have it supported natively uh, initially. Well, yeah, that's good stuff, man. Very cool. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address you're going to use if you're not already a premium subscriber. That you can send us uh, questions, tips, cool stuff found, screenshots, videos, whatever you know. We can take it all. Can we? Yeah, I guess we can. And uh, and if I'm still hearing you right, Dave, that's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. It's feedback at MacGeekGab.com indeed. There's lots of other ways to contact us. I'll leave that to you for now. We're just going to tell you about feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I want to make sure we thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for 
bringing all the bandwidth that it takes to oh you know i gotta not click that button because that's a bad thing to click ah it's learning the new the new workflow i've created for myself with evernote i really gotta just use soundboard or something but anyway uh there we are so we're back with the music thanks to the folks at cashfly c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you thanks to the folks at iamazing iamazing.com coupon code m-g-g saves you 20 percent there gazelle.com of course it's time new iphones are coming you might want to sell off your old one lock in a price now visit gazelle.com Tunnelbear at tunnelbear.com slash MGG. The simplest VPN you'll ever use and the first 500 megs each month is free. And they don't care who you are. Super privacy policy. I highly, re- I highly recommend checking it out. Smile software at smile, uh, smile at smilesoftware.com. If you go to smilesoftware.com slash geek, you'll see the most recent Mac Geek Cab special there. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG where coupon code MGG saves you 10%. And then, of course, Linda at lynda.com slash mgg. Get you 10 free days of their videos. Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. Barebones Software at barebones.com. It's all good stuff. I love it. John, you're going to have to work out a USB problem this week, but... While you're working that out, I'd like you to share some advice with our friends here, if you would. Three words. Three words? Well, you know, in the context, Dave, of talking about crypto and passwords and certificates, I just got to reflect on all of those things that they all help you to not get caught. Made up. 